studying the book of Romans together on Sunday mornings. If you're with us this morning without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Wave to them. They'll put one in your hand and uh, mark to our passage this morning for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible uh, a gift from us to you today. Romans chapter 12, uh, we pick things up in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, uh, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. We won't cover all of those today, but I wanted to read the entire section to once again give the, the flow of uh, the, the, the whole scope of what Paul is addressing here on, on this particular part of Romans. Let's pray together. Father, I just never cease to... Uh, uh, feel a need within my heart and opening your word up to pray with my brothers and sisters and say thank you for your Bible, for your word. And here we live in this world that is trying to find uh, something spiritual, some uh, morality, some way of living that is better than what is found here. And, and it will be completely fruitless as it always has been. But we thank you for the work of your spirit within our lives. We thank you for the plumb line that your word is and that straight line spiritually and morally that we can put our lives up against, Lord, and see where crookedness has maybe been introduced and to return to the fullness of the life that Christ has purchased for us. And we pray that you'd use your word this morning in just that way in our lives. We don't want to miss a single portion of the fullness of the Christian life that is to be experienced this side of glory. And so we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that in studying uh, chapters 12 through 16 of the book of Romans, that we're studying, again, as Paul put it in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the only reasonable response of a Christian to God in the light of all that he has done for us in saving us and providing us with a gospel, this gospel that he has described so uh, thoroughly in chapters 1 through 11. Paul began his description of this response, as we've seen, exactly where we might have expected him uh, uh, to in presenting our lives, as he declared in verse 1, to God as a living sacrifice, for our lives to be offered to God once and for all, wholly, completely, for him to use our lives entirely as he desires in the way that brings uh, glory and pleasure uh, to him. 
Then, of course, the question arises concerning a living sacrifice, and that is on a practical level, what does that kind of a life look like? And thus Paul uses virtually the remainder of the book of Romans to uh, provide a description of what the life of a living sacrifice will look like. And his answers are thus far that it means that we will refuse to be conformed or to be fashioned by the world around us, verse 2. It means being transformed by the renewing of our minds, verse 2. It means having a, a deep uh, abiding concern for the health of this thing called the body of Christ, the health of a local church, and being willing to use my uh, gifts and to be engaged in uh, service in that church to assure its health and to assure its strength, as he mentions in verses 3 through 8. It means, as we saw last week, uh, loving one another as Christians without hypocrisy. And we remember that in verses 9 through 16, uh, that Paul describes in this living sacrifice, this description of that kind of a Christian life, in these verses he's describing uh, what is to be our relationship toward one another as Christians, then it's very important to understand that that's what he's addressing. And he addresses it in a series of about 19 very simple, very clear, but very meaningful and uh, searching uh, exhortations in in terms of our relationships uh, one to another as Christians. And I think uh, it's so important, and as I mentioned a little bit last week, but I mentioned again this week, I love this series of exhortations that he puts in here, and, uh, and these encouragements, these practical exhortations concerning uh, the Christian life. And, uh, and I love allowing them uh, to search my relationship with the Lord and my, my Christian life, uh, the, and what I deem to be the Christian life that, that I'm living. At the time in which these exhortations were written, I think it's important to realize that Christianity was being uh, defined as to what it was in large part in a world that was absolutely pre-Christian. Christianity exploded on the scene in in the life, the death, the burial, uh, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in that early church, they're looking and saying, okay, practically, what does it mean? Paul's given us the theology in Romans 1 through 11. We understand how we're saved and why we're saved and, and, uh, and the grace behind it. But how are we supposed to live? What's this supposed to look like in the Roman Empire, in an empire which, in which a- anything uh, went, uh, worship of so many gods, so many various moralities in play in, in the Roman uh, Empire. And so this kind of practical description of what the Christian life ought to be, and particularly in our relationship with one another as Christians, was invaluable to them. And... Uh, and, uh, and uh, would have filled in blanks that everyone was wondering about. And, but I think that these exhortations are, are hardly less valuable uh, even today. For us as Christians living in this uh, uh, great moral experiment that we're in the middle of here in the United States, and the United States is very, very quickly becoming post-Christian, if it isn't entirely post-Christian uh, at this uh, point in, in time. 
and post-Christian increasingly in its worldview, in terms of its politics, in terms of its social agenda, in terms of most people's personal agendas in their life. It's no longer rooted at all rooted in Christianity. Lip service is paid to it because we have a, a historical, uh, you know, kind of, we have a history related to uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic and, and uh, morality that comes out of the Bible, but mostly it's just lip service uh, today toward it. It's not taken seriously in terms of being uh, the guidance of a country or most individuals within, within the country uh, at all. And, and the solution to uh, all of this among uh, many, many who call themselves Christians is in the light of the culture around us just simply to redefine Christianity into something that's far less demanding than the Scriptures make it, uh, far much uh, less uh, robust and uh, less like uh, the Christianity here in the Bible in order to, in their minds, maintain some kind of relevance of Christianity within a culture that is, is headed headlong into uh, secularism and uh, humanism and then uh, the practice of every kind of ungodly thing. And we could talk all morning about how misguided it is to water down what a Christian is in order to uh, accommodate the world and to gain the applause and the praise and the acceptance uh, of, uh, of the world. But the, the only point I want to make in this regard is that those of us who want our Christianity to come from the Bible uh, we are, are increasingly thought of is not merely fanatical by uh, the culture but by many Christians. And, and, and desperately in need of clear, solid, practical instruction in what is an authentic Christian life, as opposed to the new definitions of Christianity, again, born out of compromise and born out of the desire to be accepted and to somehow gain uh, even scant applause from the culture and the world all around us. And Paul began, uh, continues, as he, we saw last week, let love be without hypocrisy, and he continues with the exhortation, abhor what is evil. And so we see in this command immediately that uh, the previous command concerning love is, is never to mean an accommodation of evil uh, in, our, in our lives. And you notice here, when he declares to us, abhor what is evil, we notice, first of all, that there exists in this world something that uh, warrants the description uh, of evil, that there are things in this world that God calls evil. And so we stop and we ask ourselves of the American culture that we live in today, what would our culture consider to be evil? And, uh, and, and probably very, very little, if anything. I mean, the very word almost never is used anymore, even though I think a case could easily be made that evil is being practiced like never before in our history. But the, world, the word has completely disappeared. It's a Bible word now. It's not a cultural uh, uh, word at all. I remember some 20 years ago, I was in a gym was working out. It was down at the SOS Club down in South Modesto. And uh, they got all the TV things. Now they got the TVs right in the equipment. But they had the TVs set up around in different places. And there had been a mass shooting of some kind in the United States. And it was one of the first ones. Now we're almost numb to it. 
but it was one of the first ones, and it was just awful. And uh, the newscaster, as I was on this running machine and looking up there, the, the newscaster declared, as he described uh, the, uh, the events, he said, a great evil has visited our country. And I almost fell off of the machine because it, it really uh, set me back as I heard him use the word evil because it made me stop and think to myself, when is the last time I heard anything in this culture be described as evil? Nobody uses the word uh, uh, any, uh, anymore. And of course, the death of the word evil in our culture has uh, come at the hands of another word, and the word is tolerance. And virtually nothing can be condemned in our culture, much less be labeled evil, because everything today is to be tolerated. And I think to a great degree that this failure to condemn evil and to tolerate any sinful behavior or uh, any sinful personal uh, morality. It comes from a fear among people that if they condemn evil in another person, then that per other person might very well turn around and condemn some evil in them, some evil that they are enjoying, some evil that they enjoy uh, practicing and they don't want to stop. And so it seems to me that in this culture there is this kind of mutual agreement concerning evil. I won't condemn yours if you don't condemn mine. And I won't restrict your freedom to engage in yours if you don't restrict my freedom to engage in mine. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine as it relates to evil. And the problem with this as it goes on around us in the culture is that there's a price to be paid for a failure of a culture to even recognize evil, let alone what God calls us to do as Christians, and that is to abhor it. And uh, the culture pays a price to remove any stigma associated with the practice of evil or any shame associated with the practice of evil. And when you do that, what you always get historically is an explosion of evil which is what we're right in the middle of today. Anyone that thinks that evil uh, is going to self-regulate itself in a culture uh, or that mankind has the capacity uh, to uh, collar evil and to control evil and, or that evil can be self-regulated in a human life, uh, that, that somehow, once mankind is successful in releasing evil from the constraints of the commandments of God, and now have any hope to believe that evil will honor now the lesser commands of man, that person is out of their mind. Or very, very naive in terms of human nature, or in terms of, of human uh, history. Evil will never be content until it has completely turned the definitions of good and evil completely on their heads. And creating a culture and creating a world in which uh, declaring uh, evil uh, to be uh, what it is, uh, that is evil, is condemned, but to call evil good is commended. But Always, when those definitions get turned on their head, it is a sign of judgment 
uh, coming, and principally God's uh, judgment. There is always the consequence of sin. No one, uh, there is no victimless sin. Every sin I ever commit is a sin in a crime against myself. I pay a price for it emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. I mean, that is true of everything. The Bible is the way to live. We do violence to ourselves in every practice of every sin, and uh, certainly the practice of evil. And then one day, beyond just the regular sowing and reaping processes of sin and of evil, God ultimately steps in at some point and brings his own judgment. Somebody says, I don't believe in God. You better hope there isn't a God when you turn these definitions on their head. But there is a God. And Isaiah is speaking to the children of Israel, not even the pagan world in the, in, in the Old Testament, but the children of Israel. And, and he pronounced a woe upon them of, and, and by virtue of the fact that this calling good evil and evil good is a sign that judgment is coming. As he declared to them in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, what is to be our attitude toward evil? And Paul tells us what our attitude is to be, and that is to we, we are to abhor it. Paul does not say that we are to uh, tolerate evil uh, in our lives, that we are to minimize evil in our lives, that we're to grow accustomed and then uh, immune to uh, evil within our lives. He doesn't say that we're free to dabble in it as long as we don't quite become as evil as, as the culture uh, around us. Now, he tells us that we're to abhor evil. And the word abhor, I mean, in the English, it's a very, very strong word. I mean, it, very strong. Uh, but in the original language, the Greek, I mean, it is stronger still. The word abhor means to have a hatred of, an aversion to, a horror of, a loathing of. And the Greek word, which is uh, apostugo, it uh, is made up of two other Greek words. And Paul, he could have used a Greek word, missio, which speaks of uh, having a concealed hatred for something. But he didn't. He uses the Greek word uh, stugio, which means, speaks of a hatred that is expressed. And then he adds the word apo to it, and it means uh, off. And so Paul is telling us that we're to have a hatred of evil. Not that we keep internalized, but one that translates in our lives into an absolute separation from evil. And because uh, we can lower our standard in this regard, in the midst of the culture that we uh, live in, I think it's very, very helpful uh, to have read a few scriptures uh, from the Bible that speak of this very same thing. Uh, not to read them, just to, to read them and have them uh, not only, you know, try to filter into glazed eyes or glazed ears or glazed mind, but, but to realize that the Bible isn't wishy-washy on, on all of this. Uh, and, to, and, and to hear the, some verses that speak of, that encourage us to keep our standard high in this regard as Christians. Psalm 97.10, you who love the Lord hate evil. Psalm 119.104, 
Psalmist writes, though your precepts, through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Psalm 119, verse uh, 128, therefore all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right, I hate every false way. Psalm 119, uh, verse 163, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. And many of you realize that in quoting from Psalm 119, it is the great psalm in the book of Psalms that extols the Word of God. And one of the great keys to abhorring evil and maintaining that kind of standard within our lives is the importance of the place of the Word of God. Not merely as a standard within our lives, though it all begins there, but by being washed by the Word of God and strengthened by the Word of God regularly on a daily basis. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, "...the fear of the Lord is to hate evil." Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 5. A righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 16. A ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor, but he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, famously, most of you will uh, recognize this. Six things the Lord uh, hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren." Of Jesus himself, the writer of the book of Hebrews, uh, quoting Psalm 2, declares, But to the Son, speaking of Jesus, he, that is the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, of course, the challenge that we face as Christians living in the midst of evil is, that, is not to become uh, the proverbial frog that gets uh, boiled uh, in the midst of, uh, uh, of the evil, the proverbial frog that gets boiled in the pot of boiling water. And most of us have probably heard uh, that fable of the boiling frog. It describes a frog being slowly boiled uh, alive. And the premise being that if you take a frog and you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, the water's already boiling, it will recognize the danger immediately and leap out. But if you put the frog in a pot of tepid water and you begin to bring the heat up ever so uh, slowly, uh, the frog will never become alert to, uh, alert to the danger of the condition and uh, thus will slowly but surely uh, be uh, boiled uh, alive. And it's a very, very good fable because it accurately describes the subtle danger that each of us can face, I think, concerning evil. And to allow our tolerance of it to grow over time and uh, because that tolerance of evil grows over time, we cease to recognize the danger. 
that evil represents uh, within our lives, that it is slowly engulfing us, and, uh, and then we find ourselves being tolerant of sin and then even engaging in, in that very sin. And it is a very important protection against evil to be shocked by it. And further, as Paul says here, uh, even beyond that, to abhor it. I think especially in our culture, where, uh, which seems to me in my lifetime is now absolutely determined uh, to push all of the boundaries of, uh, of, uh, of, of evil and, uh, and, and of good. And it seems the culture to me as I look at it just determined in every way around us to explore and to experience evil without any restraint at all. And that's the world that we live in, and that's the moral and spiritual climate that we live in. I think it's very important to be careful that this exhortation of Paul is allowed to test the privacy of our, our homes. And you think about technology that we have today, and the technology that we have today allows us access to evil that is absolutely unprecedented in all of, of human history. And it's only going to be, uh, grow worse and worse until the Lord returns. And so to take this great exhortation of Paul and to apply it to our computers and to our televisions and to our phones and to our video games and to our uh, whatever, it always reminds me of that great verse that, uh, it, it, uh, that I once heard as a new Christian as being a, a great verse to post upon a television set uh, in those days but because there weren't computers and all of these things. This is how far back it all goes, certainly not cell phones. But now it can be applied to any of these devices. Psalm 101.3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And today we have, like never before, the uh, ability to, in the privacy of our own home, uh, to set up a temple to the worship of uh, Ashtoreth and uh, the goddess of sex, or to set up a temple to Baal uh, or Mars, the, the god uh, of violence, or to set up a temple even uh, to the devil himself. Sometimes I'm watching, you know, a sporting event or something, and I'll see these different advertisements for movies that are coming out, or there's this AMC show called, what, I don't know what the name of it is, but uh, it's, just a, it's just an out-and-out exploration of evil in the demonic uh, realm, and it's just very, very mainstream. And in bringing these things into our home, we can set them up to uh, become a site in which all of these things are being worshipped. And again, the key to uh, this abhorrence of evil is a love for God, number one, and then a fear of God. Go back to uh, two of the uh, scriptures that I, I read earlier, uh, Psalm 97.10, you who love the Lord hate evil. It is a love for God that keeps us uh, from evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, a fear of Him, uh, a fear of His judgment and His chastening. Now, one of the things that fascinates me about this exhortation of Paul 
uh, to us here uh, as Christians, to abhor what is evil, is that it's given in the context. It speaks to us absolutely individually and personally. But he makes this exhortation in this command uh, in the context of our relationships with one another as Christians. And I think that when we think about it in terms of that, we might be tempted to look at, at it and say, uh, doesn't whether I do or don't abhor evil only affect me? What does my abhorrence of evil or lack of abhorrence or holiness or lack of holiness, what does that have to do with other Christians? And it has everything to do with other Christians. Because number one, the reputation of Christ and every other Christian is tied to the reputation of every other Christian in the world. And we're affected uh, by uh, other, other Christians. And what I do or don't do in my own life, for good or bad, it, it, my actions, my decisions affect every other Christian. And the reason is, is because we're a part of the body of Christ, is that we reflect upon uh, one another. And, and to, for an illustration of this, it's very, very simple. When a non-Christian sees a Christian engage in evil actions or an evil speech, uh, they are put off by it. But they're typically not put off by just the lone Christian. Uh, they then uh, will conclude that this is true of every Christian. This is true of Christianity. It's all phony. It's all nonsense. You get them outside a church and they're no different than uh, anyone else. And so what we do individually reflects, uh, affects the reputation of Christ, the reputation of Christianity, but also the reputation of every single other person in the world that claims to be uh, a Christian. It hurts all of our uh, reputations, and it affects how people view Christianity. Number two, if I reject God's standard for holy living, and uh, uh, replace it with my own then, and uh, the practice of evil, then I now become an influence within a local church body uh, for my new definitions of holiness. And people will absolutely notice that our lack uh, of an abhorrence of evil and that we've begun to play fast and loose with evil and sin and they will conclude that they have the freedom to do so also. Now, it affects everybody. It doesn't just affect a Christian. And then pretty soon, as Paul declared in writing to the church at Corinth, which was very much into all of this, he said, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What I do in my life, the standard that I have in my life, it is influential into the body of Christ as a whole. It is a leaven if I'm going to participate in evil. Additionally, number three, if I cease to abhor evil and I allow it to enter into my life, it will grieve the Holy Spirit in my life. And so someone might say, well, that's your tough luck. That's just, that just affects your relationship with God. But it doesn't. When I grieve the Holy Spirit in my life as a Christian, when any of us grieve the Holy Spirit, 
uh, within our lives, to say nothing of quenching the Holy Spirit within our lives uh, uh, through uh, evil. Always it will in turn lower my spiritual temperature, and it will always harm our anointing. It will always harm our effectiveness in our area of Christian service. If I'm a teacher in the body of Christ, I won't teach the Word of God with the same passion and the same authority that I might otherwise teach it with if my life privately is, is, is engaged in evil and sin. That it would affect every single person in this room and in the fellowship hall. And it would be true of every teacher within this church, whether it's women's ministry, men's ministry, whether it's youth, or whether it's into the children's ministry. There's a loss of authority uh, in the voice of the teacher and a passion that comes with uh, this, this sin. If, I, uh, if my, the Holy Spirit is grieved within my life, I won't share the gospel with people with the same expectation. There won't be that expectation that this person might receive the gospel. I won't share the gospel with them with the same urgency, with the Holy Spirit grieved within my life. If I'm a greeter, I'm an usher in a local church, I won't uh, greet people or usher them to their seat with the same joy. My mind will be consumed with the sin that I'm engaged in. If I'm a worship leader, my worship leading will lack uh, the freedom, the spontaneity, the intimacy with God. It won't, it won't have that torrent of living water flowing out of a worship leader's innermost being uh, into the group that they're leading in worship. All of it will be hindered. My prayers will lack faith. They'll, they'll lack boldness as a result of the Holy Spirit being grieved. And if my prayer life is affected as a Christian, how far-reaching then is that grieving of the Spirit within my life? And then there is what comes upon each and every single one of us as Christians. If I grieve the Holy Spirit within my life, by the accommodation of evil, then my fellowship with other Christians will be harmed. For instance, in, the, in the, a local church like this, and the service is dismissed, we go out into the fellowship hall and we're fellowshipping uh, with one another, and, and my fellowship with other Christians in the fellowship hall, it won't be open. It won't be free. Uh, it's going to be marked by this kind of a dark, brooding, uh, self-consumed, self-condemning uh, guilt. And now that conversation isn't going to be something like iron sharpening iron where both people leave being spiritually encouraged. It's going to be a nothing conversation. A great thing is lost. And the problem is, is that each and every one of us as Christians need those ironing, sharpening, iron uh, conversations with other people. And we're certainly not going to have them with, with the world. That's either going to happen within the body of Christ or it's not going uh, to happen. 
So much is lost, again, this idea that what I do and what is a part of my life and what the Holy Spirit is or isn't, it only affects me. No, Paul includes this exhortation in the context of our relationship with one another because who and what I am in this regard affects every other Christian I come into contact with, and even those I don't. Rick Schultz was uh, taught the... Uh, staff devotional last uh, uh, Monday, and in his devotional, and and, uh, his devotional had very much to do with what we're talking about here today, but he quoted Matthew Henry, and the quote was so perfect. Matthew Henry wrote, and he said, sin makes men cowards. It makes us spiritual cowards, and it has a very far reach in, into uh, to our lives, not just affecting us, but then affecting every contact that we have with every other Christian. And so again, we turn to Philip's translation for the final word here and clarity. He translates it, let's have a genuine break with the evil. Paul then goes on and he gives the third exhortation, and that is to cling to what is good. And here you have the opposite. Here you have the the positive of it. Phillips is helpful again here when he says, let us have a real devotion to good. And so he says, cling to what is good. And that word cling is a very, very strong word as well. It means to be joined to. It means to be glued to. And, 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 when so, and the idea is that, uh, that nothing is to get between us and good in, in our Christian life. Nothing is to be able to break our adherence to good. Uh, many years ago, I used to do some woodworking. It was back in the 1970s. You weren't worth your salt as a young man if you didn't do some uh, woodworking, however good or bad you might have been at it. But... I remember in, in those days and working a little bit at it, and I was bad at it, uh, there, but there was a glue that was called weldwood, and, uh, and it was exactly as the word declared, and it's very much uh, a, a description of this word cling. And when you would take two pieces of wood and you would put it in a vise and you would put, uh, glue it together by way of weldwood, if you ever tried to break that weld, you simply couldn't do it, uh, to break that, that joining. You, you could try... you'd end up breaking both of those boards that had been put together into a a hundred different pieces. And at the end of it, with a sledgehammer, with a chisel, whatever you want, the only thing you would have left is the seam between those two pieces. I mean, you just could never break uh, the clinging. You could never break the the weldwood uh, joint, that that bond. And Paul tells us that this is kind of bond uh, a Christian is to have with good. And I think it certainly brings to mind, for me, uh, one of the great verses in encouraging this within our lives in the New Testament. That is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And he said, finally, brethren, Paul does, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And Paul knows that it's not enough to abhor evil, but we must also cling to what is good. 
because life cannot be lived in the negative. It cannot be lived just saying no uh, to everything. Our lives are meant to be filled, and they will be filled with something. And Paul says, fill them with good, and good as the Bible uh, defines it. He goes on in verse 10 here to talk about be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, but we'll leave that to next time. Because what I want to do as we go through these series of exhortations is to just take a moment, not, not to be heavy, not to be whatever or judgmental related to them, but to allow a little bit of time to simply absorb what it is that Paul is saying here. And as we began in prayer, to allow uh, the worship team to lead us in a worship song now in, in which we just might meditate with the Lord and just take these two exhortations of Paul by the Holy Spirit and just lay them alongside our Christian life and, and, and uh, with, with God and to see if it's revealed anything crooked that, uh, that might be there in my relationship, and then to resolve it in the light of that straight line of what it is that Paul has laid out for us here. So if the worship team would come out, they'll lead us in a worship song in which we can just praise the Lord, let Him do any kind of finishing touches that He wants upon our hearts with the message this morning, and then, uh, and then we'll close in, in a final song.